So today I'm talking about the spiritual power of blamelessness. Blamelessness. And this is quite a complicated uh, concept to speak about because it's so many different aspects when we talk about blamelessness that we need to really look at. Blamelessness is the ability to stand before God without any condemnation or without any guilt in our lives, that we're clean before him. He looks at us and we have no blame in our lives. So when we look at blameless in the scripture, we notice that there's two, there's two aspects of blamelessness. First is the work of God in our lives. That's the work that God does to make us blameless. And the, and the second is the result of our obedience to the spirit of God. So as we're walking in the spirit, the result of walking in the spirit or following the lead of the spirit is blamelessness in our lives. So both of those concepts we're going to have to look at to discover or to discuss this idea of blamelessness before God. And today, we're not going to be able to do both. So we're only going to do the first one. We're going to do the work of God in our lives. So this is all about what God does to make us blameless. So here's the word blameless. It means innocent of wrongdoing. He led a blameless life. It's one of the things you hear people say. He, led a blame, he didn't do anything wrong. Jesus led a blameless life. It, uh, the synonyms are innocent, guiltless, above reproach, beyond criticism, above suspicion, irreproachable, unimpeachable, in the clear, not to blame, without fault, faultless, exemplary, perfect, virtuous, pure, moral, upright, impeccable, sinless, unblemished, spotless, stainless, untarnished, squeaky clean. And everybody feels that, don't they? Well, that's usually the last thing we are all feeling. None of us feel blameless. In fact, you know, if you, if you have a moment where you think that you, you've acted blamelessly, that's only a moment before the devil starts throwing things around your head and, you, or, and you, you have a thought and then all of a sudden the thought makes you feel like you're dirty again. So blamelessness is a really hard concept to sort of grasp. And then once you think that you've got it, as soon as you think you've got it, you just lost it because it's one of those things like humility. If you think you're humble, you're not. <laughs> so I'm really humble and I think, oh, you're proud of your humility. So blameless is a little bit like that. As soon as you feel like you've got blameless things under control and everything, so you generally step across the line and you become blameworthy then because you're actually thinking more of yourself than you ought to think. That's a hard one. So we're going to look at blamelessness, the work of God in our lives today, and we're going to try and see if we can lay our foundation through the word-wise that we've been reading and, and see if we can look at what it says. Now, the Bible tells us very clearly that God makes us blameless. So we need to lay that as a foundation to start off with. 1 Corinthians first, uh, chapter 1, verses 8 and 9, it says, He will also keep you firm to the end so that you will be blameless on the day of, the, of our Lord Jesus Christ. So God will keep you firm to the end so that you will be blameless. So he's actually made that promise to you. God is faithful who called you into fellowship with his son, Jesus Christ our Lord. So he's told you that God is going to... Now, he's saying this to which church? The Corinthian church. And if you actually listen to that at the very beginning of the Corinthian uh, letter, you would think, well, this must be going to be an incredibly blameless church. And he immediately from this passage goes on to the divisions that are happening. And he says, I would love to have called you mature. He says, but I can't. You're acting like children. He immediately brings concepts of blame on the church where they are not fulfilling the walk of, and he's trying to correct them in their walk. But at the very beginning, he's told them that God is faithful 
and he's going to present you blameless before the... So here we have the work of God, which is somewhat different to us. So we can see, like Corinthians, there can be blame in our lives and we can be living in a wrong place. But when God is looking at us and when God is seeing us, he's given us this promise. He's going to present us blameless. But it's not the only place that he tells us this. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 23 to 24, it says this, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. Now the word sanctified is make you holy or perfect or blameless. And may your whole spirit, soul and body be preserved blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Well, that's wonderful, isn't it? That God is going to do that. Not your whole spirit, soul and body remain blameless before the Lord. He who calls you is faithful, who also will do it. So here he is actually giving you another promise. He says, God has promised us that he will make sure that we are blameless at the day of Jesus' return. So this is idea here that you've got to get into your head. While you have to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, while you have to do what you can do in terms of doing the right thing by God and following his leading, God is making a statement for you and saying to you, there's not enough that you can do that is going to make you blameless, so I am going to make you blameless myself. It's not what you really are going to do that's going to cause you to stand before me without fault, It's what I am going to do for you that's going to cause you to stand without fault before me. And we need to understand that it's the premise of our lives in God. Otherwise, we end up into a whole lot of striving in our lives, trying to be good enough for God so that we can get accepted by God. That is the premise for life. It's a very poor premise to start living your Christian life, an attempt to try and be good enough so that God accepts you. There is no way that we can be good enough. There's no way that we can be blameless enough so that God will accept us. God says, you're not going to be able to do it. I'm going to do it for you. I'm going to make you blameless. Well, that's a great comfort to me. Some of you have got perfection just about off the cuff. It may not mean much to you, but I don't have perfection under my belt too, too much. And so this is real great comfort to me. And, and, and starting this, this week has been a great comfort to me in, 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 in letting me know that, you know what? Even though I stuff it up all the time and mess it up all the time, Jesus is constant and he is there to make it right all the time. Something so marvelous and something so magnificent happened at the cross, something so wonderful happened with Jesus that it covers me from here until Jesus comes back and presents me blameless before the Lord without my effort. You've got to get that. It's without your effort, without anything you did. So it's a covering of our nakedness. It's a covering of our nakedness. So when was the first time we heard about the covering of nakedness? Well, it's back in the the book of Genesis, in Genesis chapter 3. They just sinned and God was coming into the garden. So Adam and Eve are running around and they grabbed a few fig leaves. We read in verse 7, and their eyes both were opened and they knew that they were naked. They, they had some blame on them and they sewed fig leaves together to make themselves coverings. Well, we know that <laughs> fig leaves don't last long and they're going to get dried and withered up because they're not on the bush anymore and that's not going to cover your nakedness for long, is it? Sewing fig leaves together is kind of like a, a useless exercise. We know that there's no... And there's no strength in the fig leaf to stay there. You know, you get dried and withered and all of a sudden you're naked again. Doesn't work real well. 
So in Genesis chapter 3, verse 21, you probably skipped across this verse very quickly and didn't even realize. Also, for Adam and Eve, the Lord God made tunics of skin and clothed them. Just a little verse right there with such a profound meaning. Man's effort to cover his blame was to sew fig leaves together that wouldn't last. God's effort to cover their blame had nothing to do with man. An innocent animal was going to be slaughtered and God would make a leather garment from that skin and would clothe them in leather. That would be durable. It would last. They would have skin over there. But something had to die to cover them. Something innocent had to die to cover their guilt. And right at the very beginning, right in the book, chapter 3, in the book of Genesis, we get this idea presented that your effort to cover your nakedness is not going to work. That God has to do something in spite of you and has to do something that is right out of the picture. You wouldn't even have thought of this. And has to do something to cover it for you. And that was profound. You didn't, you didn't even remember that that was there. You read over that and it was like, okay, nothing. But in Genesis chapter 4, it was something. Because in Genesis chapter 4, and in the process of time, it came about and to pass that Cain bought an offering of fruit off the ground of the Lord. So here he is, Cain's come back and he's got vegetables that he's grown out of the ground. He's bought them up before the, he's put them on the altar and he's going to present them before God. Abel also bought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat. That means he killed a, flock, a lamb, he bought its fat onto the offering and he bought the, the, the thing as a burnt offering. He killed an innocent animal. One bought the fruit of the field, the other one slayed an animal as an offering for God. Well, there's already been a pattern set, haven't we? I mean, the chapter before, fig leaves didn't cover it, but God killed an animal. There was already a pattern set. So we, we, we kind of wonder, maybe they should have known about that. Hey, maybe Cain ought to have been aware of that. But Cain was full of it, you know. He was full of the fact that he'd grown some really good vegetables and he was going to present them to the Lord. But Abel recognized what had happened previously obviously it was communicated to him by adam and eve about what god did to cover them and they probably had something there for cain and abel to wear which was covered with leather and so they were probably aware of that process something innocent dies to cover and abel bought brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat and the lord respected abel and his offering and he did not respect Cain and his offering. Maybe the reason why he didn't respect Cain and his offering because of the curse that is associated with the ground and with vegetables. It says in verse ch- chapter, seven, uh, chapter 3, verse 17 in Genesis, says, And to Adam, he, God, said, Because you have heeded the voice of the, woman, the wife and have eaten from the tree of which I commanded you, saying, You shall not eat of it, cursed is the ground for your sake. In toil you shall eat it all the days of your life. So the ground from where the fruit and the produce came for Cain was cursed. And so now he's bringing an offering before God, puts it on the altar before God, an altar which has now received a cursed offering. 
God is not going to accept that because it's coming from the ground, it's come from man's effort. Nothing that comes from man's effort is going to be able to cover your sin, your blamefulness. Nothing. Abel has bought a sheep, an innocent lamb, a spotless lamb has died. He brings the fat of its intestines, he brings the lamb and he offers it. And God says, that's the picture I want you to remember. That's the one I want you to see. Nothing you can do can make it right. Only the death or the shedding of blood can bring forgiveness for you. I want you to remember that. Abel, you got it right. You got it. You you understand, Cain, you still haven't got it. You think that self-effort will get you right before me. Well, some of us have trouble. We sit there and say, why is it just so unfair? I mean, why that was that it would have been an amazing offer? It doesn't matter how amazing. It came from the wrong place. It came from a cursed ground. It can't be fixed by your effort. So blame, blamelessness is not something that you can address in your life. You have to be blameless, but initially, God is the one that fixes it up. We're told in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 4, By faith, Abel offered to God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain, through which he obtained witnesses, that he was righteous, righteous, right standing before God, blameless. He recognized the problem. He recognized the solution was something that God had instituted. He recognized that was what God would want. He offered a lamb and God says, because you offered it, you are blameless, you're righteous before me. And God testifying his gifts and through it, being still dead, he speaks. So Cain still speaks to us. Abel still speaks to us, even though he was killed by his brother. The fact that he, re- he could recognize the right offering and that was nothing he could do still speaks to us today. It, po- it follows the pattern of God in the garden. So the pattern was set. So it wouldn't be hard for us to understand why the pattern was reinstated in Leviticus. If the pattern was set in Genesis... Then when Moses sets up the law and talks about the offerings and what has to take place, it would be obvious that the pattern would be reinitiated there and set down in writing. When anybody is unfaithful to the Lord by sinning unintentionally in regard to any of the Lord's holy things, they are to bring to the Lord as a penalty a ram or a, or a bull or whatever it is from the flock without defect and of proper value in silver, according to the sanctuary shekel, it's a guilt offering. So that's what, the, that's what the, 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 the law stated. You have to bring an offering. Leviticus 4 says, if you, he is to present the bull at the entrance of the tent of the meeting, and before the Lord, he is to lay his hands on the head of the bull. So if you've been the bull, I'm to lay my hands. The bull is without defect. I'm to lay my hands on the head of the bull. And then... On its head and slaughter it there before the Lord. So the priest doesn't do the slaughtering. The one who brings the bull does the slaughtering. So the priest will probably give me the knife. The bull is here. I lay my heads on the hands of the bull. The Bible says in Leviticus 1 4, it says, You are to lay your hand on the head of the, of the burnt offering and it will be accepted on your behalf to make an atonement for you. So what's happening is here. The blame that I have before God. I put my hands on the head of the bull. It is clean and it is spotless. It's without defect. The blame that I have now goes from me into the bull. There's an exchange that takes place. The bull's perfection comes onto me and my blame goes onto the bull. 
then I take the knife and I kill the bull. Because my blame has now been punished in the life of the innocent bull. The bull has become guilty and I am free and innocent. I am blameless. You've got the picture. That's what's told over. That's what the Jews, they did, did it all the time. The hands on the head of the animal. Hands on the head of the animal. There was an exchange that took place. Their guilt for the innocent. Now, Moses was very, very particular about the sort of animal you were to bring. He said this, do not bring anything with a defect because it will not be accepted on your behalf. It had to be perfect, faultless. Anything that you bring to God that has a defect in it, it will not be accepted. No matter what you do to try and bring your offering to God, if it is not perfect in every regard, God will not accept it. So you can't bring an offering to God to make yourself clean that has a defect in it. If you do that, God looks at it and says, it's a defect, you can't use it. Your offering has to be perfect. And so the priests, they would examine your offering. When you bought the sheep or the lamb or the, or the goat or the, or the bull, whatever you bought to them, they would do a great inspection on that animal. And if they could find a flaw in the animal, you'd have to let that one go and you'd have to buy one of theirs, which was four less. Oh, they made good trade out of that. That was what Jesus was telling them, you've turned my house into a house of merchandise because they were selling and reselling perfect animals. We could find a flaw in yours, so you'd have to pay more money. Get one of ours. Good trade for the priests, hey? He says... When anyone brings from the herd of, or a flock a fellowship offering to the Lord to fill a special vow or, a free, or as a free will offering, it must be without defect or blemish it, to be acceptable. Do not offer to the Lord the blind, the injured, or the maimed, or anything that, with warts or festering with running sores. Do not place any of these on the altar as a food offering presented to the Lord. You are not to bring a flawed offering. So I want to lay that down to you very carefully. And I want to bring an application to you. If you try and work out your salvation on the premise of your good works, that's a defected offering. You cannot achieve anything to save yourself. You can say, well, I go to church twice on Sundays and I go to all the prayer meetings and I give all my money to the poor. But if that's out of yourself, it's coming from a cursed ground and it's flawed in every respect and it will not be accepted. You can say, I've, I've worked so hard, I don't know why God will reject me. If I, if I end up in the balances of God, you know, I've been pretty good. That offering is rejected because it's flawed. It's premised upon you and your works. And there is nothing that you can do that can make yourself accepted before God. It's a flawed, defected offering. You think, oh, God wouldn't be saying that. Blamelessness as a result of self-effort is detestable before God. He warns us very carefully about it in the Scripture. In Isaiah 64, it says, All of us have become like one who is unclean. All your righteous acts are like filthy rags. God is not impressed 
by the good deeds that you do. So I'll be good from now on. You'll see. And all your good deeds now build up to this great big... I don't tell lies. I don't swear. I'm basically good most of the time. I'm not murdering anybody. I'm not getting sexual immorality. I'm not stealing. I'm not doing it. I'm living basically good. You can't fault my life now. You know, I'm okay, you know. No, no, you're not okay. Your good works are like filthy rags before him. You cannot fix it yourself. He warns us very carefully in Matthew 23, verse 27, 28, when he talks about the Pharisees. Now, you've got to get this. The Pharisees were the, the religious leaders of the day. You could not fault them in terms of how they lived. You look very hard at the way they lived, and you would not be able to pick a flaw in the way they behaved, in their keeping of the law and what they did. Jesus himself says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You are like whitewashed tombs, which indeed appear beautiful outwardly. So everything that they did outwardly was perfect. It looked perfect. It was beautiful. You look at, look at that man. Look at the way he, oh, look at his, look at the way he's doing what he's doing. You can't fault it. It appears outwardly beautiful. He says, but inside are full of dead men's bones and uncleanness. Even so you also outwardly appear righteous to men, but inside you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Now Jesus says right at the very beginning in Matthew, when he's doing the Matthew 5 20, uh, sermon on the mountain, he says, For I say to you that unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will in no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Now that's pretty scary now. We're really scared now because if the people who got their righteousness out externally perfect were not good enough, what chance have we got who are not even able to do the outward things perfectly? If the very Pharisees who lived perfectly according to the law were found faultful, filled with fault and hypocrisy, and Jesus says, you've got to get some righteousness better than that. What hope have we got if we're striving to do that? Well, what was the righteousness of a believer as opposed to a Pharisee? Well, the Pharisee was confident in their ability to be right. It was their effort. It was their bucket of vegetables put on the altar. It was their fig leaf that they were sewing around their waist. It was their effort before God saying, look, see, I've got the outside spotless. And God looks inside and says, it's dead and dirty inside here. See, no one can be righteous through the law. You can't do it yourself. Turn to your neighbor, touch them on the shoulder and say, stop trying. You cannot be perfect. You see, you see, I think, I think, this is what I think. Walking with Jesus is far too hard for some of us because Jesus says, do something. And we say, well, that means I have to stop doing something else. And I don't want to stop doing something else just yet. I want to keep on doing that, you know. And so what we do is we, we do external things that appear to be righteous, but inside we keep on doing the wrong thing. And you, you fool me every time. I look at you and I think, you're going on for God, aren't you? No 
aren't you just doing it right now? And you got me because I can't see inside. You got me with the externals and I, I, I'm not going to call you a Pharisee. I think you're one of the better ones. So we put on a facade so everybody can see the facade and we miss the point. And the point is you can't do it. You can't do it. Not even the good things. And I don't mean that you need to be doing bad things now. Well, I'll just let the bad hang out then. You can see the bad then. Or God can see the bad anyway. So even if you're covered up with good things, God already can see the bad. He already knows what's happening inside. You've got to get some confidence on Jesus, who is the one who can make you blameless. He's the lamb that was slaughtered. You put your hand on his head and you recognize that when Jesus takes your sins away, you're clean, not because of what you did, but because of what he did. You know, the inspection that took place on the offering, was it was full on. And when God looks at the offering that was given for us, he doesn't expect us to see the faultlessness in our lives. He knows we're stuffed. We're stuffed. We're, we're broken. So he looks at the lamb. He looks at Jesus. His eyes scrutinizes Jesus to find fault. He cannot find fault in Jesus. Then he gives you a knife and says, now kill him. Because it's your sins that put him on the cross. You kill Jesus now. Because it's your sins that he's dying for. The priest didn't kill him. You do him. And when you keep on sinning, that's what you're doing every time you sin. You're sticking the knife in Jesus again and again. And again. And again. It's a horrible kind of concept. So we're told that Jesus fulfilled this pattern. In Hebrews chapter 10, verses 1 to 18, and I'm going to read this whole passage to you because I think it gives you some sort of sense of how the law actually is worked out in our lives as believers. For in the law, having a shadow of the good things to come and not... So, so for the law, having the shadow of the good things to come and not the very image of the things, can never, with these same sacrifices, which they offer continually year after year, make those who approach perfect. So he's saying one thing, he says, the law is a shadow of things to come. And at that time, it was picturing like a, a shadow of, you stand here and the shadow is cast from the light here, it's cast out there. The shadow is because there is something real standing there. He's, and now you're not looking at the real because they couldn't see Jesus. They could only see the shadow. The shadow was the lamb. He says, the law is just the shadow. And he says, and, and, and you can't be made clean by offering up that sacrifice over and over again, he says. For, when, for then would they not have ceased to be offered? He says, you, you offer up one sacrifice? He said, it would have all been over. You know, one sheep takes away all of your sins for, for all times. He says, but it doesn't. It only cleans you for that moment and you go out and it's a problem in the future. Which kind of makes me think about Jesus. His sacrifice doesn't just pay for what I just did. It's paying for what I am going to do. I haven't done it yet. The bad things I haven't done yet, Jesus already died for them. Not just the things I've done, but the, not the things I'm doing, 
The things that I haven't done yet, that sacrifice, that's the only way it can make me blameless when it comes. It's got to cover me past, present and future. Should I sin now that grace should abound? No, I should remember that. He says, for then they would not have ceased to be offered. For the worshippers once purified would have had no more consciousness of sins. But in those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. So every year they got reminded of the same thing. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away your sins. So Christ's death fulfills it, he says. Therefore, when he came, Jesus came into the world, he said, Sacrificing and offerings you did not desire, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, there was no pleasure. God was not happy with the killing of lambs and the killing of... He found no pleasure in that. He said it wasn't doing the... It was only a shadow of what was to come. Jesus was going to do it. And it was going to cover the ones who were in the past like it's covering those in the future. It was going to cover the people who, who offered up sacrifices from Dot, from Abel's sacrifice, right through to us now. It was going to cover us in all time. He says, but a body you have prepared for me. This is Jesus saying this. In burnt offerings and sacrifices and sin, you had no pleasure. Then I said, behold, I have come in the volume of your book. It is written of me to do your will, O God. And Jesus says, previously saying, sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and offerings for sin you did not desire, nor had pleasure in them, which are offered according to the law. Then he said, behold, I have come to do your will, O God. He takes away the first that he may establish the second. So why don't we offer up sacrifices of lambs and goats and bulls and chickens and whatever else you want to offer up? For the very reason Jesus put an end to all of the shadow. You either see the shadow of your girlfriend or you can see your girlfriend. Which would you rather see? I would rather see my girlfriend than the shadow of my wife. I would rather see her. What would you want to do? Do you want to keep on offering up sacrifices and bulls and lambs and striving with your own effort to try and make yourself clean? Or do you want to see the real deal? Jesus says, I'm the real deal. God, you prepared a body for me. This is the body. I've lived perfectly now. I'm not a shadow of it. I am it. By this, that will you have, we, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. I like the word once and for all because it means at one time for all times. At one time for all people. At one time for all situations. I like that. That's the, that's the amazing grace of God. You want to stop and think about that grace. That thing you just did last week that you thought was just too far? Jesus saw it. He covers it. By the Holy Spirit also witnessed to us, for after he said before, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, says the Lord, I will put my laws into their hearts and and in their minds I will write them. Then he adds, their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. Now where there is a remission of these, there is no longer an offering for sin. Blamelessness achieved by God's one offering. A beautiful offering of Jesus. It's established at the work of the cross. So when Michaela is freaking out and she's thinking, 
Oh, I've got to stand before the Holy One. I've got to stand before God. Who's going to, I'm going to stand before Jesus and Jesus is going to look at me and I'm so conscious and aware of all the failings that I have, the thoughts that I have, the feelings that I have, all those things that are not right in me. I'm so aware of them. I'm so aware of them. And he looks at her and he says, child of mine. Because he has made it blameless. Not by the works we have done. But by your grace and your grace alone, into thy presence we come. The blamelessness of Jesus has now been transferred to my life. And I stand in his blamelessness and he died for my guilt. What an exchange. You say, is this justice? Absolutely not. It's the greatest injustice of all time. That you would walk free and that Jesus would die. The greatest injustice of all time. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 26 to 31, we get to, to see Paul talking to these naughty Corinthians who just don't have their lives together, who, whose lives are in, imperfect. And he says, for you see, you're calling, brethren, that not many are wise according to the flesh, not many are mighty, not many are noble. He says, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to, to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to put shame on the things that are mighty and the base things of the world and the things that are despised. God has chosen and the things which are not to bring to nothing the things that are. And listen to what he says, that no flesh should glory in his presence. So why does God look at it and say, make sure that there's no self involved in this exercise. Make sure that there's nothing of you in this exercise in your presentation. Make sure that when you bring your offering before God, you are not contaminating it by yourself. Why does he do this? He says, because you cannot glory in my presence. There will be no flesh that stands before me and say, I did it my way. There will be none of that, says God. You know why I choose dumb people and people who don't think that they should make it and people who are broken and think, people who are flawed and people who just don't see, you know, he should have been making it. He was so good looking. He should have that and this and the other thing. God chooses the broken ones. Why is that? Because he knows that he will receive the glory. He's not interested in an offering where at the end of the day somebody looks at you and says, you know, you did really good, buddy. I see you. He's interested in choosing somebody who says, you know what? I see Jesus in you. That's the difference. Some of us want to be recognized. We still haven't got this. We, we were raised on this attitude that you've got to be competent, adequate, and achieving to be a person of worth. We were sold that as a youngster. We were taught that as we were going through school. We were taught that from our parents who were overly critical of us. We were sold that left, right, and center. Our mates told us that we're not good enough. Everything around us tells us that we're not achieving enough. There's always something better out there than what we can offer. And we live our whole lives thinking we are not adequate, competent, achieving to be people of worth. And we strive to get worth. And guess what? The more you strive, the worse you become. You know why? Because it's not of you. It's of Jesus. Jesus does the blameless thing. He sets you free to be good. 
You don't have to strive to be good. You set free to be good. You will know the truth and the truth will set you free. It is but in him who um, you are in Christ Jesus who has become for us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Jesus has become our sanctification. Jesus has become our perfection. Jesus has become our blamelessness. Jesus has become the perfection of God in our lives. Jesus is in us and God cannot see a fault in us. We are blameless before him because of his son. He who glories, let him glory in the Lord. Now friends, you need to get that one at the core. Before you try to, try to do any Christian work or before you try and work for Jesus, you've got to get that one at the core. Because everything else is ruined if that's not in its place. If you work your Christian faith to try and do things and work for God or pray or read your Bible, whatever you want to do, and you think that somehow you are earning points with God, you miss it badly. It's only causing more pain. You do this thing because you want to get to know the one who made you clean. You don't do this to be clean. You work for God because you love the one who made you clean. Our society has messed our head up with regard to striving for stuff. We work for it all the time. It's so in us, so ingrained in our minds. How much did you get for the last exam you had? Oh, you have to work harder, won't you? You're obviously not working right. If you do things differently, it'll be different for you. How much money you make? Where's your status? Yeah, you got lots of money. You must be doing something right in your life, hey? You poor man. What happened to you somewhere? You obviously lost your way somewhere, did you? Into something wrong? You got money? You put money in the bank? Whoa, yeah. You, you, you're successful? Whoa, you're a good person, aren't you? How many times have you heard somebody say, you know, they're a really good person. I know they're not Christians, but they're a really good person. What you're actually telling me is that that person is able to work their goodness out before God and put it on the altar and somehow God will accept it. Everything in the Bible tells me that that's not true. Everything from the very beginning tells me that fig leaves will not cover the problem. Fig leaves are beautiful when they're growing on a fig bush. You look at a fig tree and you see its fig leaves there and you think that's lovely, but you take them off the fig bush and you start wearing them like it, they, they cease to be lovely. Friends, you have to work this one through in your life because I think that some, in some of us, we, we, we do so much in a striving to be acceptable before God and we do not acknowledge him in all our ways. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 to 10. But God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us. Let's slow that one down. God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us. I look at my grandkids, you know. They don't do things right all the time. I've got a measure of great love for them. They can do bad things. Be naughty, break things, spill things, say rude, cheeky things. 
I look at them, and it all kind of disappears, you know? It all kind of disappears. Because I look at their little face, and I look at their little face, and I think to myself, you know what? I got this great love. And their mummy and their daddy might be saying, oh, la, 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 and I'm just going to be hard. I'm not, I'm not like that anymore. I used to be like that when I was a mummy and a daddy, but I'm a granddaddy now, and I, they call me a feeder. I'm the one who feeds them chocolates. I'm the one who feeds them when they're not meant to have anything to eat. You have a little chocolate, Daisy. Papa loves you. Why? If it's a measure of me that I want to give good gifts to my grandkids and I just love them to bits, how much more is it with God? Who has great love for us, even though we are immature and so def- defunct in our ways because of what Jesus did. He just looks up and he looks at us and says, Oh, my children. And even before Jesus died, he had that love for us. For while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He loved us from the very beginning. Why are you striving so hard to be accepted before God? He already loves you. You want to see how much he loves you? Look at the hands and look at the feet. Look at the spear in his side. Look at this, the scars on his forehead. That's, that should tell you how much he loves you. He got all that before you even recognized he was around. Even when we were dead in our transgressions and trespasses, the sins that we have done. You know, think about the worst thing you've done in your life, Bill. The most embarrassing. I don't want to know about it. No. Jesus can't remember it. You can, but Jesus can't. Isn't that, a, isn't that a strange thing, eh? That he's got such a forgettery. That he can remember the worst thing he's ever done in his life, the thing that makes him so shamefaced that he wouldn't probably tell you or me about. He'd probably tell you about the social sins, but the bad, really bad stuff you just don't talk about, do you? Unless you want to come undone. But God looks at him and he punishes in Jesus. And he doesn't see it. You can remember it. It makes you shake when you go before God. You get down. I wonder if God can even forgive me for all that stuff. I mean, I can remember it. You know. It makes you shake when you walk before him and you think, is he going to... And he looks at you and says, my child, my child, I love you so much. What did you do to deserve that? You know, the text tells us quite clearly, made alive together with Christ. He says, by grace that you have been saved and raised up together and made sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come he may might show the excellence, exceeding riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Oh, man, he's just so full of it. He just wants to pour it out upon your life. He wants to show you. So, and he says, for by grace have you been saved through faith. Listen to what he says. And that not of yourselves. You did not grow this in the ground and you did not cultivate it and you did not water it and fertilize it and then pick it when it was ripe and then put it on the altar. He said, it's not of yourself. You can't do it. You didn't go and sew those fig leaves together and say, you like my little mini dress? You didn't do it because it's not of yourselves. It's not of works. Blamelessness, this blamelessness, the core of our faith is not of works that anyone can boast. It's the great equalizer. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. There is none righteous, no, not one. 
Not some, not some a little bit more righteous than others. There are none righteous. No, not one. But with his great love, he loved us. And he redeemed us and he called us by name and he lifted up us. And he killed the lamb to cover our sin and our nakedness. And now all he sees is the skin of the lamb. Clothing us, the breastplate of righteousness, the perfection of Jesus is upon us. Blamelessness, my friend, comes from Jesus, not from you. Next week I'll talk to you about what you have to do because of this foundation. But get this right at the very beginning. You can do nothing to get there. He did it all for you. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. Which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Oh yes, we will do the good works. But none of those will be premised upon you getting to heaven. The good works have to do with the reward you're going to get. How outrageous is that? That you get to heaven is outrageous enough. But then, then when you get there... He says, I've been watching you since I've converted you and made you clean and you've done some good stuff and now I'm going to reward you. And I think, well, you know, that's just crazy. Absolutely mad. But Jesus is not worried about what you think about it. Jesus is full of his grace and his mercy. So when we talk about blamelessness, get it right at the very beginning. You can't. And he can. And that's the foundation on which your life should premise. So stop doing your Bible reading plan thinking that Jesus is going to be impressed with you. He's not impressed with you if it's a work of your flesh. Stop getting on your knees and start praying for hours. You think that God is going to be impressed with you if you pray for hours. He's not. If he's told you to pray for hours, then pray for hours. But he's not impressed if you do. None of the things that you do which you think are good, sowing for, for somebody, making booties or, or, or sowing, mowing somebody's... None of that is going to work for God. Don't start sitting there piling up and thinking, you know, I've done all these good things. God is not into it. If, if you start to keep a tally of the good things that you've done, you think that it's going to get... It won't. Many will come on that day and say, haven't we done these things? We've done all these things. I've been keeping a list of the things that I've been doing. I got my list. Jesus, aren't you impressed? And he said to you, depart from me. I never knew you. And you know what? Somebody who doesn't do so many good things is going to step in inside before you because it's not upon the premise of the things that you do. It's on what Jesus did for you. And some of you have been striving. Your whole life, your whole Christian life has been like a striving. You want to stop that today. I'm serious, you need to stop the striving and start to worship the Lamb who takes away the sins of the world. You cannot be good enough. Stand up with me. Bow your heads. Close your eyes. Father, we just don't have words to say to express our gratitude to you. When we really get this, Lord, we understand the great injustice of the exchange that took place to make us clean. Father, there was absolutely nothing in us that was 
salvageable, but you saw value. You saw value and you came into this place, Father, to give Jesus as a ransom for our sin, without which we could never be saved. Father, you did the only work that it was possible to make us clean. You clothed us with your son's skin. We stand now before you boldly, Father, because the sacrifice was so good. The sacrifice was so perfect. And then that unjust exchange, Father, we, the imperfect ones, now have become perfect before you. So we just want to thank you, Jesus, today. We want to thank you, Father. We want to fill our hearts with praise to you because you did what we could never do. You made right the thing that was broken. You healed us and brought us back to yourself, Jesus. And we will ever be indebted to you in Jesus' name. And everyone said, Amen. 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 God bless you.